All right, welcome everyone. Uh, we've got a really special speaker today, long-standing friend Dennis Gartman. Um, where to begin? I guess I want to start with uh, a um, a tweet that John Roke sent out to Chart Life. For those of you who aren't following him, he's in the third row on the right. Um, well-known technician um, from 22V. John's a long-standing friend and one of the best chartists in the street. I see we've got Tommy Thornton in the house, another great friend and technician. But I was absolutely blown away by uh, the chart, that uh, the, the, the tweet that John sent out. I'd seen it earlier today. And it speaks to, and maybe we'll get John here to talk about it later, or Tommy or anybody else. And it was, if you just look, it's mind-boggling. I mean, here it is. Kathy Wood has had a 50% off sale. No, make it a 60% off sale. And people are putting money into her fund. Like, come on. I mean, it's like, how's the saying go? The lesson shall be presented until learned. I mean, this is complete insanity. So when everyone keeps saying, oh, well, we near a bottom, we near a bottom. I mean, as John will tell you, and, and John, I hope you come up for a talk for a couple minutes. These, This is not the type of behavior you want to be seeing at a bottom. Um, to the contrary. I mean, you want people standing on, you know, ledges and slitting their wrists and all that kind of stuff. This is just complete insanity. And I, I know I tend to be a bit hyperbolic at times and, and um, make outrageous forecasts, but I'm just responding to what I see. Oh, I see Dennis is in the house now. Um, I, 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 I just respond to what I see. And to me, like, you know, at a bottom and Walter Deemer's not in the room, but you know, it, it, Walter always says, you know, it, you know, when it comes time to buy, you won't want to. Um, and, and, and so this is just complete insanity. I think we have a long, long way to go on the downside. That's before you even get thank into you, George. Yes. Yes. Okay. So he's in right now. Yeah. Thank you. That, that's great, Dennis. Just, just stay, stay muted for now, Dennis. Your time will come shortly. So at any rate, um, this is complete insanity. And you look at George, the charts, they're horrible. So yeah, De Dennis, we can hear you. Just just stay stay quiet for the time being, and and, and I'm going to give you a nice intro. Just hang on. Okay. So um, th this act, th this behavior where everyone's buying the dip, this is not what you want to see. You want to see you know people slitting their wrists and and, and 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 people redeeming. I mean, this is just insanity. I mean, even in the 2000 2002 bear market, we didn't see this. I mean, the, the the new investor class is just completely out to lunch, and and and, and I mean, we got a lot of veterans in the room here, whether it's Dennis or, or Doug Cass or Three Aces or Tom Thornton or John Roke. I mean, what a what a so much firepower in one place. But this is insanity, just complete insanity. So um, I, you know, everyone says, well, what, where's it going to go to? I mean, valuation doesn't tell you about a bottom. That's just a condition. It doesn't. It doesn't. It it it, it, it doesn't doesn't trigger anything. The charts look horrible. The macro is going the wrong way. Um, this is not bearish behavior. I'm sorry. And, and there's another part to this as well. You know, it's this decline's been too orderly. They haven't been breaking things. And whether it's because everyone's convinced stocks for the long term, Jeremy Siegel, please call your office. Oh my God, if I sell now, I got a problem. I got to buy it back later. What do I do? I don't want to pay taxes. My financial advisor stay, I should stay in. No, it's like, how do you cook a frog? You, you, turn the, you turn the temperature up slowly. To me, this is going to go down in the history books. We are watching history right here, right now, as this is happening. This is going to be one for the record books. And as long as I'm my, so, and, and related to that, 
I tweeted at you. I'm sure you all saw it. You know, a lot of the, the great, the rich and famous, the great and wonderful, the ones that have ridden the fang trade, you know, on steroids for the last few years. And I wish I'd been so smart, but I wasn't. So maybe there's a little bit of sour grapes here. But you see the likes of Tiger Global, KOTU, D1, Viking, et cetera, getting the shit kicked out of them. And they're trapped in all this stuff. So this all goes back to Michael Howe and his whole thing about, you know, liquidity. It's all about liquidity. It was about liquidity before the Ukraine. It is about liquidity. It will be about liquidity. Yeah, we'll get a pop if and when the Ukraine resolves itself. But I wouldn't hold my breath about that. I will speak later on why I think in the short run, I think things are about to get really, really bad. What you've seen the last two or three weeks with, with Putin is just the warm-up. But you're going to have to stay in this room to hear that story. Anyway, the reason we're here today is we have Dennis Gartman. Dennis is a dear friend. I've known him for decades. Um, he's one of the few guys around, maybe Doug Cass also, who's older than I am. Um, Dennis is a, a true gentleman. Um, he is the butt of derision at times because if you publish as much as Dennis does, he was always getting up at 3.30 every morning to write something. Of course, you're going to look stupid from time to time. But if you consider the totality of what he's done, he's had more than his fair share of outsized correct calls. More importantly, he's full of wisdom. And um, I'm really glad Dennis has agreed to do this. It was great. We had Doug Cass a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'm trying to get some of the other elders out there. Hopefully, uh, Dennis's friend Don Cox is going to join us soon in a couple of weeks. But there's really, you know, it's, it's funny. I'm not a religious person, but, you know, in Judaism, we have the, the Old Testament, Christianity of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I'm not a religious person, but Judaism is something that's known as the oral tradition. I was explaining this to Dennis before. And the oral tradition, this is nothing that's written down, but it's, it's the tradition, it's the wisdom that's communicated from one generation to the next by the rabbis. And it, it plays an important part of Judaism. And part of what I observe is that it, one of the great disconnects we have in the market these days is we have the new investor class that's only been in since the post-great financial, you know, in the post-great financial crisis era. And they don't know much about financial history and they don't understand first principles. And I can't blame them because everything has been up and to the right. And it's just buy the dip. It's all you need to know. But that's not normal. And anyone who's got more than just a couple years of trading experience knows it's not normal. I tweeted out Dennis's a couple days ago. You can look at my Twitter feed. Dennis's, Dennis Garvin's 22 rules of trading. Um, and I'd like for Dennis to share his wisdom and his perspective on markets. This is not, you know, oh, what should I buy? What should I sell? It's the old, you know, if you, we're not here to give a man a fish. So to give him a meal, we're here to teach him how to fish so he can make a living. All right. And Dennis I've benefited so much um, over the years from your wisdom and your insights. And you don't know how many times I quote you. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and that's the effect you've had on me. And I really, I think it's great that you've taken the time, you know, to share your insights with everyone here in the room. We're all going to learn a lot today. So Dennis, I'm going to shut up. I came here to listen to, to you, not me. <laughs> um, you've got the 22 rules posted. Yep. So I guess I, I so talk, the, full, the stage is yours. Talk about whatever you want. I guess I'll start off by just asking a general question. Um, you've seen a lot of markets, and you know this market's unlike any market I've ever seen before. But what is it that you think? You know these twenty-two rules, or even put the piece of paper aside on the rules. What are sort of some of the key first principles 
that you think the new investor class is missing that, 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 that you just look at it and you just kind of shake your head. Cause I, I've never quite seen it this bad. So Dennis, with that, the floor, oh, but I, should, I should mention, tell everybody, Dennis is a, uh, is a tar, is a uh, NC state guy. He's chairman of the university of Akron, uh, Akron investment committee. He's been on the NC state investment committee. Um, so he's eating his own cooking. So Dennis, with that, the floor is yours. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you, George. It's my honor. And the good Dougie, Dougie Cass is on here also. That, that's extraordinary. Um, a couple of things just to start. I had a seat on the Board of Trade for a number of years. I learned a lot about how trading goes when you're yeah, 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 Dennis, I want to interrupt you. Could you please try to speak, keep the phone closer to your mouth so we can hear you better? Thank you. Yeah, I got Is this better? Is this better, George? Yeah, it's much better. Thank you. Thank okay, you. Yep. Sorry yep. about that. Yeah. Uh, I had a seat on the Chicago Board of Trade, and I used to like to tell people I got rich three times and broke two and a half times and enjoyed it both directions and learned a lot about how markets are made, who makes markets, and who does the right thing and who does the wrong thing. The uh, title of today's comments are 22 Rules of Trading and or I'm Flat and I'm Nervous. The I'm Flat and I'm Nervous was a friend of mine, Brad Rotter, who amongst uh, – he and I were in the pit uh, one day. Bond futures were trading a point and a half higher, a point and a half lower, a point and a half higher, a point and a half lower. Uh, the, the volatility was absolutely unbelievable. And I asked Brad, Brad, what do you think? And Brad said, I'm flat and I'm nervous. I have no position on and I'm scared. And sometimes that's where markets get. Sometimes being flat, you can be nervous. And I thought that was an important comment to, to be understood. The other thing, uh, Don Cox once had, I think, one of the, the funniest and yet best lines ever in, in, in the market history when he was asked about emerging markets. And Don said, and I, people should write this down, emerging markets are markets from which you cannot emerge in an emergency. And we're seeing that now in Russia. You cannot emerge in an emergency. And I think that people tend to forget that. What's happening right now is indeed it has been a, an eight or 10 year bull market I like to say that I originated the line. We're moving from the lower left to the upper right uh, to keep things simple. And keeping things simple is the best of all methodologies of trading. Uh, for, the, for the last eight years, we've been moving from the lower left to the upper right, predicated upon the Fed being monetarily expansionary beyond their wildest, anybody's wildest dreams. And as we all know or should know, and if we don't know, we should know it soon, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And we have had an expansion of reserves here in the Bank of Canada, the Bank of China, the, the ECB, it makes no difference other than perhaps the, the Russian Central Bank. The expansion of reserves in the system has been utterly, utterly extraordinary, utterly historically unprecedented, except for perhaps sometime back in the 14th and 15th and 16th centuries at the beginnings of central banking with the, with the Bank of England. We have not seen this sort of expansionary phenomenon ever, and it is uh, soon it's going to stop. And that's uh, I think that's what people are missing and they're going to miss that for several years and they're going to make a mistake. It's been the common courtesy, the common tendency, the common organization, the common ten trend has been to buy the dip. And I think that uh, for the last uh, four years anyway, uh, it's been the fear of missing out FOMO. I think from the next two or three years, it's going to be the fear of being in. That's going to be the problem. And it's going to be something that uh, the young kids, as George was intimating, uh, are not going to be able to understand. They're going to be av averaging down all the way down. And it's going to be, I think, uh, a, 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 a relatively disastrous circumstance. I ask you to be 
pleasant with me this afternoon. I've got Parkinson's disease and my voice tends to crackle and it, it tends to go bad about five o'clock. So I'll try to make this quick. I learned the hardest way about trading. I learned the, the, the hard way of, uh, of trading by losing money at, uh, at times. And I sat down about uh, 20 years ago and decided when I got up at one o'clock in the morning to write my newsletter. And I did that for 35 years. I got up every day at one o'clock and tried to knock out eight or nine pages on what's going on in the markets generally, what's happening technically, what's happening philosophically, what's happening fundamentally, and tried to get it out to the clientele by five o'clock Eastern time. Uh, and every, I only took the only days that I took off each year were Christmas day and new year's day. Uh, I, uh, if the markets were open on, well, July 4, for example, everybody else here in the United States takes that day off. The markets in England would, would always be open. I could never get the Brits to understand that July 4 was a holiday. So I, I continued to write on, on Memorial day. I continued to write on, on July 4. I wrote on labor day. I, I wrote on, uh, Thanksgiving and every year. The Friday after Thanksgiving, I put out my, my rules of trading. They changed a bit over time. Sometimes there were 18, sometimes there were 20, sometimes there were 22. But talking about the rules of trading, I think, are important because they, they are what I learned in 45 years of being involved in the capital markets on a daily basis. And the most important rule of all, and people will argue with this constantly across time, but never, whatever you do, ever add to a losing trade. It has always made sense to me that if you bought a stock at 25 and it went to 30, the market's telling you that you're right for whatever reason you got it right. You might have it wrong for any number of reasons, but the market's telling you you've got it right. You may not understand it, but you have it right. If you bought a stock at 25 and it goes to 30, buy more. If it goes to 35, buy more. If it goes to 40, buy more. If it goes to 50, buy more. The market is telling you that you're right. It's a simple thing. And the only thing that can happen to the equity in your account, if you're adding to an, if you're averaging up on a winning trade is that, uh, you're going to, your, your account equity is going to be going from the lower left to the upper right. It's that simple. If you buy a stock at 25 and it goes to 20, why would you do more? Why would you argue with the sum total of the wisdom and the stupidity, but more than likely the, the wisdom of the market, which is now telling you that you're wrong, why would you ever consider doing more of that which has gone against you? It makes absolutely no sense. And the only thing that can happen when you buy something at 25 and you go and you buy more at 20 is that it, uh, your, the, the value of your account goes down. You're going to lose mental capital. You're going to lose real capital. And it makes absolutely no sense to me. I always used to tell the story that back in 1974, in the great inflation of the early 1970s, sugar sold at 55 cents a pound. And there was fundamental reason for it to go up. There was uh, a, there was drought in the in the sugar producing the sugar beet producing areas in the western part of the United States. There were problems in the sugar beet producing areas around in Australia. There was clearly a problem with, with what was going on in in uh, in uh, uh, the the Caribbean, where a good for, portion of the sugar is comes from. There was a reason for sugar to go to fifty five cents a pound, and people bought it at fifty cents. If you bought it at fifty cents, having been at fifty five. It's already shown you that you're wrong and people would average down and say, well, if it just gets to 52, I'll, I'll break even, which was fine until it went to 45 cents. If you bought more at 45 cents, you said, well, all it's got to do now is get to 50 cents, which I'll, I'll break even, which is fine until it went to 40 cents. So you average down and you bought more at 40 cents and you told yourself, if it just gets to 43 cents, I'll break even, which was fine until it went to 35 cents, until it went to 30 cents until it went to 25 cents, 
Now you buy more and you say, if it just gets to 37 cents, I'll break even, which was fine until it went to 25 cents and 20 cents and 15 cents and 10 cents and 5 cents. And by the winter of 1982 and eight years later, sugar traded at 2 cents a pound from 55 cents to 2 cents a pound. It was always my favorite example of a market that can continue once it starts going from the upper left to the lower right. You have no idea how far down down can be. And averaging down is the it's the one problem that that takes a losing trade and turns you into bankruptcy. I learned that one day on the Chicago Board of Trade when I took on uh, trading bonds, trading 10 year notes versus Jenny May futures. Uh, and, and normally that spread bond uh, notes versus Jenny Mays might move six or seven thirty seconds. And one day the, the, the Jenny May market moved about 10.30 seconds on the opening and I sold Jenny Mays and bought T-notes. I did it like a thousand lots. Next thing I knew, the trade's against me by 10 ticks. I averaged into it. Now the market's moved 10 ticks when normally it's moved 10, 20 ticks and the market normally moves six or seven or eight. Now it's moved 20 and I averaged into it. And I broke the rule and I sold more at 25 ticks against me. I sold more at 30 ticks against me. And that basically took me out of the market for about six months. The important thing to understand is that market moved another 430 seconds in the course of the next three or four days. Thank goodness I had enough wisdom to get out of the trade when it only cost me several tens of thousands of dollars. But the market had moved, by the time it had finished its move in six or seven days, it would have cost me several million dollars. They were carrying locals, as we were called, on the floor out on stretchers at the end of, the, uh, at the end of time at the end of three or four or five days. Clearinghouses couldn't carry the losses any longer, and the locals were taking a huge beating. Averaging into a losing trade, averaging up to, into a short position, averaging down into a long position is the only thing that will take you out of the market and, and, and send you to the sidelines, perhaps even permanently. So the first rule of trading, the number one rule, the one that you just cannot break, is whatever you do, don't average into a losing trade. Losing trades, averaging into a losing trade is for suckers. It's just the worst possible mistake you can make. Second rule of trading is trade like a gorilla, like a gorilla fighter. You want to understand the fundamentals as you understand them. Maybe you get the fundamentals wrong, but you want to understand the fundamentals in some, some manner that makes eminent sense to you. And then you want to make sure that you see the technicals that are working in the same, di same direction that you, as you understand the fundamentals, and then you want to trade. You want to trade on the winning side. You want to be a gorilla. You're willing to fight on either side, the long or the short side, but you're not willing to average into a losing trade. So you want to fight like a gorilla warrior. Gorilla warriors are tough. They're, they're quick. They change their minds when the trade moves against them, and they don't average into a losing position. As I like to say, capital comes in two formats, mental and actual. And quite honestly, I think the mental capital is worth more than the, than the real capital that you have in your account. Because when you have a losing trade on, you're going to end up, you, you hemorrhage mental capital. You stand on the sidelines defending a bad trade. You're not doing the good trades. You're not trading like a gorilla. You're not averaging, in, averaging up on a good trade that's going in your favor. You're not averaging down on a short that's working in your favor. You're spending real capital defending a bad trade. And it's costing you mental capital. It's costing you real capital. And I, as I've said, I think the mental capital is far more important. The objective, rule number four, the objective is not to buy low and sell high. That's silly. The objective in our business of, of trading is to buy high and sell higher. The objective, if you're short, is to sell low and buy lower. 
you have no idea what the tra- how how to pick a bottom, how to pick a t- how to pick a top, but you can watch something that's been moving from the lower left to the upper right, and you can buy more of it. You can uh, you can uh, hold play, bear with me one second. The Parkinson's is kicking in for just a minute. Yeah, Dennis, why don't you just take a TV time out for a second, um, just to reset the room. Yeah. Dennis, Gar- Dennis Gartman speaking on the rules. And Dennis, you know, to go through all 22 rules, I think, is a, is a yeoman's task. So, you know, in, given that it's late in the day and your health considerations, yeah. I invite you I invite you to, to pick and choose as you see fit. I mean, the homework assignment is not to go through all 22 rules. The other thing I will tell you, it's just funny. I'm just listening to you talk. I'll give you a second to, to recover your breath here. Um, it's funny. When you were talking about gorillas and being tough and being nimble, and yeah. you know, you're talking about ascertaining the fundamentals the best, you know, figure out the fundamentals you can see fit. I was thinking of the AMC apes. You hear gorilla, ape, whatever, same thing. And I'm like, their conception of the fundamentals, they're in some like parallel universe. And so I don't know, we'll, we'll ask you about the AMC crowd later, but in any in any event. Um so Dan, Dennis, I mean, you know, we could spend hours, I'm sure, at all the rules, but yeah. in de- in deference to your uh, stamina. Uh, you know, focus on what you think is most important. The most, the other most important rule is, uh, as my friend Gary Schilling, I think Gary said it, but everybody wants to say that it was uh, uh, Lord Keynes who said it. Uh, the markets can remain illogical far longer than you or I can remain solvent. And, and I think that's a terribly important uh, aspect of the market that we tend to forget. The markets, in my mind, were terribly illogical over the course of the last year, moving from the lower left to the upper right with AMC, with the with the with uh, Bitcoin rallying as it did from uh, basically from 10,000, from zero, for God's sake, to what, 60,000 at one time, uh, made absolutely, uh, to me, that made absolutely no sense. It was utterly and completely illogical. But the markets then eventually returned to logic. The, go back and take a look at what happened in, in uh, the tulip bulb mania. I mean, it's one of the best examples of markets that made no sense whatsoever, skyrocketed when the value of a tulip bulb cost more than the house in Holland. It made no sense, but markets can remain illogical far longer than you or I can remain solvent. They will eventually return to, to, to logic. You will, uh, solvency will eventually be given to those people who, who stayed, stood aside and watched the illogic for a while uh, manifest itself. But uh, we're, we're, we were in, in a period of time when illogic ruled. The, the, fact, that, the fact that we had so much money being, being force-fed into the system, driving stock prices to... I, I think extraordinary valuations. Uh, seeing the the effects of the Kathy Wood syndrome, the uh, Palapatia syndrome, uh, the uh, uh, who was who was the the fellow who was always in the the betting guy. Uh, uh, you're, not, you're not talking about Ross Gerber or or, or uh, David Portnoy. David, oh, David Portnoy. Yeah, yeah. Barstool Sports. Yep, yep. Barstool, getting on the market, getting on the on, on his website every day and touting stocks. And saying that all you had to do was be a buyer and it was going to work, the the market had had reached the level of, of illogic, of of, of uh, stupidity, of overvaluation that uh, I think that we're in for the the likings of a bear market that is going to be extraordinary over the course of the next two or three years, as the Fed stops being expansionary, and begins the process of being contractionary. I do hope that the Fed allows the the size of its balance sheet to roll off rather than to be sold off, if it sells off, if they actually begin the process of selling treasury securities to, to drive the monetary base down to lower levels, 
having gotten close to $9 trillion from $800 billion a mere decade ago, uh, a, a, a supply of reserves that is, un, that is, that is unprecedented in, in my memory and, and in reading history that I, I've seen over the course of the past uh, 45 years. I, I hope the Fed does not go to the process of beginning to sell Treasury securities and reduce their balance sheet directly, but allows the balance sheet to roll off. But nonetheless, even rolling off means that the, the amount of fuel in the tank of the, the of the cars that are the the stock market, uh, we're 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 gonna uh, the fuel is being taken away and, and prices have to, uh, on balance, uh, I think decline. So we're gonna pay we have to pay attention to what the Fed does in the course of the next uh, year or two. Uh, the question shall be: Is the Fed going to tighten the overnight Fed funds rate and take it up 50 basis points uh, at, at the meeting next week? And the answer to that is no. Uh, but they'll, they'll, I'm sure that they're going to tighten and take, take the overnight Fed funds rate up by 25 basis points at each meeting through the course of the year. And what, if that happens, uh, take, uh, add, uh, what, 180, 175 basis points to uh, where we are right now, and we get very close to having an inverted yield curve if the overnight funds rate uh, gets close to uh, the two-year note. Uh, we're going to get awfully close to an inverted curve, and inverted curves give rise to re recessions. Historically... Bear markets uh, or corrections, I guess I should say, uh, in bull markets tend to be 15 to, 15 to, to uh, 20 percent in, 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 in periods of time when there is not a recession. But if we have a recession, suddenly the stock market can go down 25 to 35 percent by historical precedent. And I'm afraid that the latter is a far greater probability than the former. What have I learned about commodities? They used to call me the commodity king, which I was I, I started my business. I started in the business in 1972 as the economist for Cotton Incorporated. And I was lucky enough to learn how important watching the term structure of a futures market is. My job at Cotton Inc. was to explain the futures market to cotton producers and explain to them how they could use it to hedge their production, how mills use the futures to hedge their, their inventories. And I watched, by watching cotton, I learned that in great bull markets, markets always go to backwardation. The front month gains on the back month in up days. The front month gains hard on the back month. On down days, the front month loses less than the back months. And you go to backwardations in, in raging bull markets. We've seen it but at the peak, and it was fascinating a couple of years ago when crude oil got to 125. I think the high was 145 for one quick uh, one day or two. It was interesting all the way up every day, every day, every day, every week, every month for the, that bull market. The front month gain on the back month and the backwardation continued to widen relentlessly. And suddenly in the last week, looking back at it, in the last week of the market going higher, suddenly the front month began to not gain as much as the back months did. Suddenly the front month actually began to lose relative to the back months. And it was where I've always said that the term structure is where, the, is where informed money, wise money, hedge money, uh, money of the, of the people involved in the, in the business itself manifests itself watch the term structure and the term structure interestingly enough in crude oil began to turn bullishly the front month began to gain upon the back month the uh, the contango began to narrow the contango began to narrow come to the point of being at parity then suddenly you went to backwardation and the backwardation continued to widen and widen and widen and widen until the last several days this week suddenly the backwardation began to narrow Something's going on in crude oil that I think we've actually seen a peak. Pay attention to what the, the term structure in, in crude oil. Pay attention to the term structure in all carrying charge markets. Pay attention to the term structure in corn.
pay attention to the term structure in soybeans, pay attention to the term, term structure in wheat. The only markets that don't have term structure circumstances where you don't pay attention to the term structure is in cattle, hogs, and in natural gas, maybe even sometimes in natural gas because it can be stored from one month to the next. But in the non-storable commodities, pay no attention to the term structure. But in the, ter- but in the storable commodities, and especially in crude oil, it is this, watching the term structure will tell you where the market's going to go in the, in the, in the near term and, and going forward. And the term structure in crude oil has narrowed dramatically in the course of the past several days. I think it's important. I'll, I'll, pay, I'll be paying attention to that over the course of the next week or two. And when I write my, my commentaries on Thursday evening, I, I spend at least uh, half a page on term structure in the crude oil market each time. So watch what goes on there. It's, it's the best indicator of the, further, the, the future direction of a market. Um, so, just, yeah, so Dennis, let me ask you a couple questions. Sure. So um, a couple of rules you didn't touch on, which I think are particularly relevant right now. Yeah. And one is rule number 16, where, you know, bear markets are more are more violent than uh, bull markets. And so are their retracements. Yes. And, and also, I forget which number it is. The one how, um, here we go, number five. In bull markets, we only can be long or neutral. And in bear markets, we only can be flat, we can be short or neutral. Um and so the idea that, you know, many people haven't gotten the memo that we're in a bear market and they're still trying to, you know, call a turn and they're trying to trade counter trend. Maybe they don't realize that the trend has changed. But could you just speak to the psychology of bear markets and and how it's not the opposite of a bull market and what makes it so hard and why trading counter trend is a bad idea? First of all, bear markets, and it matters not which, which, which market you're talking about, whether you're talking about stocks, bonds, whether you're talking about wheat, corn, whether you're talking about cattle, hogs, whether you're talking about uh, crude oil or cotton, bear markets are always more volatile than our bull markets. That's one of the reasons why the VIX, is, it goes, the VIX rallies in, in bearish moves, because the, the bear markets fall faster. That's the old line. You go up on an escalator and down on a broken elevator. And markets fall much faster than, than markets go up. As a floor trader, it was always much more fun being short because you made more money on the, on the short side than you did on the long side because the market fell so much quicker. And it's hard for people to adjust to that fact. But right now, we're starting to see markets fall very quickly. The rally, the, and I think it's terribly important to understand that in bear markets, one of, the, one of the hallmarks of a bear market is that volume rises on a down day and falters on an update. That's a very important thing to keep into, to, to keep into consideration. In bear markets, the volume rises on the down days and falls on the, on, on, on the, on the corrections to the upside. And I, another thing that I think is important to understand, markets tend to correct, and this is w- without getting too esoteric, markets tend to correct 50 to 62% of the recent moves. That's, uh, I watched it time and time again. I actually call it the box. I, I mark it on the charts where something has stopped going down, starts to rally, how far up can it go? Mark uh, 50 to 62% of the, of the recent decline, and you'll probably get a bounce into that level, and you want to be a seller into that, into that area, especially if you start to see it rallying in that area and the volume on the, in the stock market, the volume in the futures market, the volume on, on the cash market is faltering. In, in, great, in, in bull markets, markets go up on big volume and come down on light volume. In bear markets, markets go down on big volume and they correct on light volume. It happens all the time. It matters not which, which market you talk about. I've watched it in 45 years, and it's something that's consistent. So pay attention to that fact. And not enough people pay attention to that fact. And I think what we're seeing now is the hallmarks of a bear market 
that are relentless, that are that are difficult for people to get a grip on. And we've watched, uh, for example, the uh, let me let me flip to a chart here real quick so I can speak authoritatively. Uh, give me one second. I'm going to Finviz, which is one of my favorite uh, favorite uh, websites. And uh, when we when we broke the, I I, I want to tell people that we the the bull mar- the bear market began January 5th here in this year when we actually had um, an outside reversal week to the downside. We made a new all time high in the in the Dow, a new all time high in the Nasdaq. Took out the previous week's lows. Those are rare circumstances. I pay attention to reversals. And suddenly we had a huge break in, in, in January. You took the Dow from, I'm looking at the charts right now, you took the Dow from, call it 36,700. Uh, 36, you took it down to, uh, what, 3,200. And I, I put on the chart, I looked on my chart and said, what is the 50 to 62% correction number? And we went right back, just barely broke through the top of it, and then tumbled again from there and did it exactly the way it should be done with volume ra- declining on the on the ra- on the rally and increasing on the on the downside if you look at uh uh let me let me take a look yeah here. so yeah 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 so dennis it might be useful um just put that in perspective like i don't care what soundbite index you want to look at and arguably the soundbite indices are, con- are hiding the true extent of the damage that's occurring because oh, we know not, there's not been a question a, about that. The right, right, right. So, 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 but if you were just going to, I don't know, pick anything you want, S&P, NASDAQ, Apple, whatever you want, just like, or maybe the s whatever, whatever index you want to pick on. Like if you had to look at the S&P or NASDAQ or something like that, just spitballing with each other, if you had to throw, throw a number out, like where do you think S&P or NASDAQ or any other asset you care to, you care to reference, where do you think it, it might go to if it follows your, you know, 50 to 62 per retracement uh, guideline. Well, we, we did the perfect retracement back in late January, the first first and second week in February. Now we've gone back to new low. We're, we're heading lower again. And I think the S&P, without too much difficulty, makes its way to 3,800 to maybe 3,900 over the course of the next month and a half or two months, which is a long way down from, call it 4,200, where the futures close this afternoon. I think we go to 3,800 on the downside in the S&P. And I think we do it relatively quickly once once we uh, once we start uh, uh, again. I think we're in a little consolidation here, but nothing more than that. And I think uh, the, the trend is, it, to me, George is clearly from the upper left to the lower right. Retracements have been modest at best. They've lasted maybe half as much time as the declines had been, and the volume was uh, as we expected it should be, rising on the declines and falling on the uh, and falling on the advances. So I think I think we're going to be surprised by how quickly we get to. Uh, to 3,800 in the S&P future. So, so yeah, so Dennis, so Dennis you think there's a potential for, like, a trap door to open here? I think there's a potential for a trap door to, trap door to open. We we should have, given the, to, today's action was, was really quite awful, to be blunt. Uh, hearing the, the initial reports this morning that Putin said there was there were advances as far as peace talks were concerned, the, the Dow opened, what, 350 higher? And finish the day lower on the day. That's that's not good action. That's terrible action, and to me that means we're heading, I think, demonstrably lower. Rates are going to go higher, stock prices are going to go lower, and there's not going to be any place to hide. Institutions, as the chairman of the University of Akron's endowment, now we're only like four hundred million dollars, so we're we're small. We're not a uh, billion dollars, but it's our four hundred, and it's important to us. I actually got us to take uh, twelve to thirteen percent out of the market January December thirty first. And I put three percent of the of the funds last February into uh, into gold and took three percent out of the market at that point. So unlike most uh, inst- uh, 
university endowments, which are still 100% invested uh, in, in in equities, uh, we're we're going to be we're going to lose less than anybody else does, and that's the important thing to understand in a bear market. In a bear market, he or she who loses the least is is going to be the winner there, especially amongst the endowments, especially amongst the uh, the institutions. And uh, I think the losses are going to be substantive. So he or she who loses the least over the course of the next year is going to be the winner. And right. I think the, the losses that's are going to be material. That's great. That's great. So uh, hold on for one second. There's Mr. D- Dougie Cass, are you right there? Are you there, Dougie Cass? I'm here, Yeah, Dougie. so, okay, so um, I've got three aces and O'Hare. I've got to step out for a few minutes, and they are going to be co-hosting the room in my absence. And, Dougie, since you go way back with Dennis, I thought – it might be useful because you kind of know the way Dennis rolls. Um, and, and I don't know how well, I think three aces knows. I'm not sure about O'Hare, but maybe I, I like to start cause I have to d- disappear for a minute or two, for a few minutes. Maybe Dougie, uh, you might want to, you kind of know how Dennis thinks, how he rolls. And, and maybe there's some pointed questions you'd want to ask him about, you know, his reflections on the current market environment or what he's learned or what he thinks about okay. oil or anything. So, so Dougie, if you could weigh in a little bit and maybe, Throw a few sure. questions. You caught me by surprise. No, uh, yeah, but that's but that's all right. Dennis is like a <laughs> Dennis is like an old lover. This should come pretty easy for you. Go ahead. So go so ahead. I have like, I was like, I have like a man love thing with Dennis. He knows that. So okay. you guys, you gotta, gotta um, wait, wait, do you guys want to get a room together or something? Go ahead, have at it. Go on. We we go back a long way, Doug. So so the first thing I want to say, it sort of sounds patronizing, but it's it's heartfelt to me that Dennis combines. Uh, the investment wisdom of Solomon, since you were talking about the Old Testament, with um, the practice or the the practicality of being a trader on the floor of the commodities exchange. And those that's very valuable. But what few people know, besides um, uh, besides I endured the benefit of it over you know decades of, of his advice, his analysis and his observations is that he's an exceptional golf teacher. And I just wanted to tell him, I just wanted to tell him that I shot a 77 this last weekend. With soft forearms. If it's soft arms and soft hands. So, okay. So I'll start with a question, which um, is a tougher question and not a softball. A lot of your rules and a lot of the rules that, um, which govern a lot in my investing and trading. Yeah. And the same applies to Bob Farrell and Walter Deemer's rules. Yes. Um, reflect con- <coughs> conditions of a different investment age. What I mean by that is um, we've seen um, the investment business morph from active investment management to passive investment management with the pro- proliferation and popularity of exchange-traded funds and the importance of quantitative strategy, specifically risk parity, which um, which uh, creates portfolios based upon risk, risk between equities and fixed income. And they're leveraged, very leveraged products. So this move from active management, then, to passive management has changed market structure appreciably you know today passive products account for over 70 or 75 percent of total trading so it's much different um i used to go to idea dinners with bob brin brimberg scarsdale fats at the harmony club with soros and 
David Rocker and Cooperman. Great names. And Oscar Schaefer and um, um, Susan Byrne. And we always, we talked about stocks. Now no one talks about stocks. And it seems to me that, do, do, my question is, do the rules change with the structural change in the market? Um, I, I do observe, and I think you observe, that most of these strategies are price momentum based. They worship at the, at the altar of price momentum. Uh, as a result, it seems to me that moves both on a short and intermediate, especially on a short basis, but also on an intermediate term basis, uh, are exaggerated. So the question is, do, you, do all the old rules apply? Have you thought about developing new rules in light of market structure change? I'll be blunt. No, I don't think that I don't think things have changed that dramatically that that my rules of trading average don't average down fight like a gorilla do more of that which is working less of that which is not. I don't think that has changed at all. I do think that uh, passive investing that uh, has changed the demeanor of the market has changed the manner in which um, money flows into and out of the market. But do I think that psychology has changed? Doug, I really don't. Uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm absolutely wrong, um, but I I I will argue that uh, passive investing has has changed the the manner in which funds flow in and flow out. But I don't think it's changed the the psychology the, the, of markets. Dan, the reason I mention that is because unlike human beings who engage who engage in active money management, active investment management, um, um. The machines, exchange traded funds and quant strategies are unemotional and based upon machines and algorithms. So there's a change. There is a, a not too subtle change. The, the biggest change that I think I've seen is is after reports come out and after uh, Fed fund, after the minutes of the Fed uh, meetings come out and after uh, comments from the Fed come out, the machines read faster than you or I can read and they they drive markets uh, rather violently higher in those moments, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes after a report comes out, after a Fed policy statement comes out, you get a rip to the upside, a rip to the downside, and the machines are doing themselves a disservice. But I, I honestly don't think, I, I, you and I may argue on this, I don't okay. think that the psychology has changed so much at all. It's still, it's still human beings at the end trying to make a rational decision and, and, and in most instances, re acting on emotion rather than upon uh, uh, in, in intellect. But I, so could, I, one other, I, I could be wrong. I have one other question for you. Yeah. Um, I just got off the phone with my old boss, Lee Cooperman. What a gentleman. And, and Lee asked me for uh, a list of uh, large cap stocks that had suffered in excess of a 60% decline from, the, from their highs. And there are a lot of them. And, you know... It, I have I created this list from you know a lot of the names Peloton, Zoom, uh, Wayfair, DraftKings, uh, David Portnoy's company, Penn Gaming, uh, Tupperware, Twilio. Um, a lot of these stocks I've been sure, thank God. Zillow, Wayfair, Roku, Roku Palantir, et cetera, et cetera. So I I said, what do you need the list for? He says, well, he's going on TV. I don't know, either CNBC, <laughs> CNBC or Bloomberg Monday, and he's discusses thesis which if you listen to lee over the last two years he said there are three different groups of stocks there's fang secondly there is all these concept stocks the stay-at-home stocks 
which have ended in tears and that there's everything else. And he thinks that there is value in the everything else bucket. Uh, could it be that, as George mentioned, a lot of the decline, um, well, the absence of decline in S&P, S&P has disguised the carnage in many of the, you know, PayPal, Spotify, Shopify, we know the list. Arc, um, Arc. So, so could it be um, um, that, um, and I know when you say 3,800 to 3,900 on the S&P, you don't mean that sort of precision, but could it be that a lot of the damage has taken place and the everything else bucket has sort of been to some degree, the baby with the bathwater and there's some values in that third bucket. Not, not a question. I mean, I, I can, I can see that. I know you own, I know, I know what you own because you disclose at the end, albeit, you know, with covered calls. Yes. Uh, I, the, the thing that has me interested right now is Cisco. I mean, Cisco has been down what 55, 60% from the top and it's starting to show signs of forming a bottom. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in Cisco. Uh, I'm interested in still owning uh, Philip Morris because it keeps making new highs, although today it, t- it tumbled a little bit, was down uh, 1%, which in, in Philip Morris is a big move on the downside, and it has me bothered a bit. But um, there, are, there are IBM, for example. I have an interest in IBM. It's so, showing some signs of strength, and it pays a reasonable dividend that's well covered. There are, the damage that has been wrought upon the Pelotons at all is extraordinary, and you're starting almost to get, in some of those instances, to the levels of... Uh, of being fundamentally uh, balance sheet oriented. Uh, right. my, my, uh, it, it's got my interest, uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the S&P, the NASDAQ, few, the, the indices themselves have hidden the damage that has been wrought upon the market over the course of the past year and a half. Some of these oh, things are extremely... I have, a th- I have one final question, third question. Yeah, I don't know where George is, but if we have time... Um, you know, I'm I'm short buyers, long short manager, as you know. And yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I'd ra- much rather be short than long, um, even over a broad market cycle. But I noticed that in your letter, you're really never short equities. Um, and I've always I've always thought that shorts are trades and protect wealth, but longs generate wealth. Is that your basic concept as well, or do you have reason for that? No, it's that, that's my basic concept as well. On the, in the long run, in the long run, it's 15 and 20 years, of course. Stocks will generally move from the lower left to the upper right. Uh, on, on balance, it, it is better to be somewhat long of the stock market uh, on balance. But right now, I think uh, one has to hesitate and one has to hold a fair amount of cash. And, and I mean real cash, not, not moving out of the stock market and moving into bonds, because I think bonds are going to get hurt very badly. I think you actually have to own real cash, which is expensive. In a seven percent, eight percent, nine percent inflation, holding real cash is a, is an ex, is an expensive experiment. But I think that that's the proper place to be. So I own, I I run my own money. Um, my wife lets me keep a couple, you know, a few millions of our money on on hand all the time. And I own a, a fair amount of uh, Philip Morris. I own a fair amount of Cisco. Uh, I own a fair amount of gold at this point, which is one of my larger positions. And I own a fair amount of of, of cash, and I'm comfortable doing that. So. On balance, uh, as, a, as, a, as a hope for wealth generator, you have to err upon the side of being bullish generally, but there are times when you're supposed to be demonstrably less long, uh, and, and that's the, the, the course of action I have right now. I, I do think that one has to own a fair amount of gold. I'm, I'm anti, I, I'm, my antipathy is toward uh, Bitcoin, 
I have no interest in Bitcoin whatsoever. And as I've told people, and, I, and I'll continue to tell them, it may go to 100,000, but it shall do so without me. I don't understand it at all. I shall never understand NFTs. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I mean, owning a picture of a tennis shoe makes and, and paying $250,000 for an original picture of a tennis shoe makes is, is senseless to me. It's tulip bulb mania. But uh, yeah, I, I disclose what I have, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually proud of doing that on a weekly basis. Hi, Dennis. Dennis and Doug. Oh, sorry, O'Hare. Oh, no, I'm just going to – yeah, just just a quick one here before I I forget. But Dougie and uh, Dennis, I've been in the business 27 years. Fantastic to have you guys here. I'm glad George uh, got this set up here. Absolutely fantastic. I've been following you guys since day one of my Wall Street career. So fantastic conversation here. One thing I want to ask both of you guys is this. uh, Well, actually, two things. One, going back to kind of the the market structure comments. Yeah. Uh, with the advent of all these ETFs, a lot of people just aren't talking about stocks necessarily. They're talking about all of these ETFs. They're trading in and out of these ETFs. They're easy to trade. They're liquid and it's free. It's not like what it was when I was when I was starting out. You had ticket charges. You had a hundred dollar commissions on a trade. I mean, it was it, it whole, it's night and day. So I think the market structure has completely changed everything. I started out on the options floor, and I remember when, the day I started, we traded in in, in fractions. And when I left, we traded in decimals. decimals and it killed everybody's business. I mean, literally everybody, all the business went upstairs, right? So that's one thing I'll just say. The other thing I want to say is I want to ask Dennis Who did you clear through? Uh, where? On the floor? Yeah. Well, we were, we were market makers on the floor. I worked for Sondag Trading. Oh, okay, very interesting. Yeah, here on the Pecos in San Francisco. Yeah. So my question is um, – and, and by the way, Sundag got bought by uh, uh, Wolverine. So they, Wolverine did a bunch of acquisitions 20 years ago. They just just been a massive roll-ups in this space. Um, but anyway, so my, my, my second question is this. Um, it relates to what you said earlier, Dennis, and I completely agree with you. 99.9% on all your trading rules. Now, everybody's got an opinion. And here, let me ask you this, and Dougie as well. You guys are experts. So... Uh, when you talk about not buying down, not buying your losers, right? Not buying down. If you buy an, uh, you buy something, it goes down 10%, don't buy anymore, right? Just get out of the trade. I agree 100% wholeheartedly if you're doing futures, commodities, currencies, things like that. However, I'm a, I'm a value guy. I help. Uh, I have a partner. We run a, a small mid-cap value strategy. Are you and still we there? Always joke, we always joke around that if we buy a stock into, into the portfolio, a new name, and it goes up the next day or by the end of the week, we're not doing our job. So we kind of laugh. We always say we like to buy, take a small position in, in a new name. If it goes down, we buy more. So when it comes to equity, specifically with you know value, deep value, special situations, what are your thoughts about buying lower? I, I, if, you, I just, if you know the name, right? If you understand the business. I, I, I get you. And I, I, I can understand why somebody might buy uh... – uh, 3M at uh, at one price, and if it goes five percent against them, buying a little bit more, I can understand that. But by the time you bought the first one, don't buy. If you bought a second one at five percent lower, make sure that the third purchase is above the first purchase. Make sure you don't continue to average down because you just don't know how far down can go. That's well, the main. That's the real problem. Absolutely. And so the second thing on that is, I think, and Dougie probably attests to this as well. Is position sizing. You never take a full position on your first. Entry, Absolutely. Right? You all, you scale in and you scale out. Correct. Absolutely. Couldn't uh, there? I couldn't argue with that if I tried. Hey, uh, Rianis. 
Yeah, thanks, brother. Thanks, O'Hare. Hey, Dennis and Doug, um, you know, I, I left the street, the buy side in around 2000 or so, and then I've been a, a corporate issuer twice as a CEO. Um, so today, it's just all my own money like you, Dennis. Um, but so the way I look at the world, both financial and the financial markets and in the corporate on the on the Main Street stuff that I do um, is two kinds of risk, systemic and non-systemic risk. You know, systemic being, you know, the Osama bin Laden's, the, you know, the Biden's and the rest of the crap that's going on out there. And then the risk in the individual investment itself, whether it be my company or, or a liquid security of some kind. <clears throat> and I always felt like I, you know, the fundamental work that I do on the on the non-systemic stuff, the individual name stuff is is really where we roll up the sleeves and all that, the fundamental stuff. But then, I, you know, which is my job. And then when I look at my portfolio, um, you know, um, I look at the, the portfolio's job itself is to take care of the systemic risk, right? To where, so, you know, that's your long short and things like that. Yes. What I hear, yeah, what, and I thank you for that. Then in the form of a question, thank you. Uh, so, so basically I get, I'm getting DMs, 10, 20 DMs a day and everybody's obsessed with trades, 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 trades. And, you know, I try to promote this idea of, managing risk to where I don't even really care so much about the market itself. I care about, you know, the portfolio construction, take the market out of the equation and then focus on the individual names. So I'm just curious, um, you know, if Dennis and Doug and so on, if you had any thoughts that some of the home gamers here who are just getting started and stuff on how they can use the port, their portfolio strategy, not the individual names in there so much, to try to offset some of this daily craziness that goes on in these periods to where the markets are changing, uh, you know, everything under the sun every other day. Uh, I appreciate uh, your input there. Thank you. I, I say the major thing that one should be concerned about is always making sure that you have some puts on or some stop orders in, nothing, nothing too terribly sophisticated um, to always uh, have hedges in place. I, I've always been a hedger. I started, as, like I said, I started in the business as a uh, cotton analyst and explaining the cotton futures market as a hedging mechanism. I've always tended to be a hedger of some sort. I've always tended to have stops in. I've always tended to write calls against. I've always tended to buy puts on the on the downside. I've always tended to be uh, adverse to egregious risk. And and I, I think that uh, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I think that's that's how I handle it. Yes. Yeah, so basically pick your best stocks and then, you know, try to hedge uh, the market risk out through uh, uh, exactly. stop losses and, and using and options then, of some kind. And puts on the S&P. That's exactly how it should be done. No, no In my mind, no question. Thank you now, very now much getting, for that. Now, getting institutions to do that is a whole nother story. Uh, getting institutions to actually accept that they should be hedging their, their risks away is, is a difficult concept. As I said, I'm the chairman of the University of Akron's endowment and getting our, our outside investment advisor to, uh, to, to use puts, it's been, a, it's been a difficult position. The best I could get us to do was to go to the sidelines and go to cash. But I, at, at every quarterly meeting, I, I argue we should be buying puts against the, the portfolio, paying, paying the insurance policy and, and paying away the, and, and ameliorating the risk to the best of our abilities. I, I think that's the I think that's the way of the the way of the past, and I think it's the way of the future, and I think it's the way to keep people involved and 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 uh, immensely less risky. Put it that way. Right. Fantastic. Got I it. just want to reset the room real quick, guys, for everybody in this space. We have got a lot of people in here. A lot of people want to ask you questions. 
Uh, George Noble was able to get a, uh, Dennis Gartman in here with us today. Uh, legend. I mean, absolutely fantastic uh, to get him in here. Dougie Cass as well. Fantastic. A lot of a uh, lot of experience in the room here. So if you guys have in this in the space here have any questions or uh, or comments, uh, feel free to just jump in here. We'll try to get as many people in here as we can, and uh, uh, just raise your hand and we'll we'll get to you. So uh, hey, O'Hare, one, I think yeah. Tommy was up here. I he yep. just didn't raise his hand. Can we go to Tommy and then start on hands, please? Do you mind? Yeah, let's go to yeah, let's do that. Yeah, let's go to Tommy. Yeah. Hey, to Prod- Tommy. Uh, Prodigal and then Bob. All right, go ahead, Tommy. Thanks. Hey, Tommy. Hey guys, how are you? Old uh, Dennis, it's uh, it's great um, having you on here. Uh, lots of good wisdom. Uh, definitely uh, have been uh, a fan of yours, and you've inspired me as I uh, write a note every day. And I'll tell you, it. Uh, I don't need to tell you this or Doug Cass. It's freaking hard. Uh, <laughs> it is really hard. And uh, you know, going back to my days when um, I was a senior trader at a very active hedge fund. Um, I could shut it off for a while, but uh, Dennis, you're right. It is a uh, 24/7 job, and I'm in my in the car right now with my wife, and she could attest to that. Uh, but <laughs> that's for another time. Uh, but basically, um, I'm looking at things right now, uh, and I'm I'm generally a, a I lean bearish, uh, and I worked for a fund that we had a net. Um, that short position for many years and we made money every year wow um yeah it worked um but right now um i a lot of my indicators and i'm, I'm very technical i look at market sentiment uh, i'm a specialist that uh, i used uh, demark indicators for 20 plus years tom's and, very smart yeah he's uh, he's really a genius and yeah, tom's uh very smart and uh i mean just he can look at his chart, any chart without his indicators and can tell you what number uh, his sequential's on. He's just incredible. Um, so right now, I'm, I'm looking at, I weigh things, and uh, John Roke used to do a note, you know, the asset and liability on the technicals. And right now, I'm starting to position myself long. And I know people are probably going to say, oh, God. But I have seen a lot of extremes on market sentiment and I know that, and I say it all the time, market sentiment is a condition. It's not a trigger, but we're starting to see a lot of DeMarc uh, buy countdown 13s within the S and P. The S and P is still a few days away. The NASDAQ uh, 100, the composite, the Qs, and the NASDAQ futures did get a sequential 13 today. And that doesn't mean to go out and rush into buying recklessly, but you have to do it methodically. And I, I, a little, I'm different um, a bit from you, Dennis, because I will average down a position, but I also don't average more than my strict position size, which my max is 5%. So if I want to start nibbling uh, on something uh, with 2%, I can add. Uh, and then I run. I use a stop with after a full position, and it, instead uh, of me going in, and it, I mean it's a it discipline. It's, it's and look, I'll I'll also average up, and I averaged up on some longs uh, this week as well. And I'm I'm buying uh, a lot of names that I would have considered, you know, these were all shorts that you know that I liked um, all the way down, 
But when I'm looking at some, they have the signals. I have a lot of different things. And, and let me point out, my call has been, we would go down, make, we'd have bounces with lower high bounces that every bounce you need to, once it exhausts, you sell into those bounces. And it's worked out pretty well. And I think that's going to be the case tactically trading for the full year. And we, I, I put out today that, you know, what could go right? And I'm a contrarian by nature. And there's two things that the market's been upset about or, you know, they're big catalysts. And that's it was the Fed and inflation and what the Fed is going to do. And then Ukraine has really, you know, thrown everything out. I think that there's upside potential for any potential good news in Ukraine. You saw the DAX go up 8% the other day. Eurostoxx 50 went up 7% or almost 8%. And you could see a type of reaction. And when you have markets that are oversold, and again, I use a lot of different indicators and sentiment polls, uh, you, you do get that, um, you could get a big reflex rally. And the other thing is, the CPI came in bang in line with consensus. And Powell said in front of the uh, Congress that you're going to expect 25 basis points. And that was like him saying, this is what you're getting. And if there was a upside surprise on the CPI, let's say if it was eight and a half, you know, versus 7.9, then I could see the 50 basis points. Or if let's say the Ukraine situation wasn't uh, front and center and the markets were, let's say higher, I could see 50 basis points, but I think the market could rally after the 25 basis point move. I, and look, they're going to raise 50 probably in May because that's six weeks away. And the March CPI is going to be a scorcher with all the other commodity inflation. Yeah, so, exactly. The gasoline, gasoline finally gets figured into it. Damn it. Yeah, definitely. So anyway, uh, I just want to say, hey, um, hope everybody has a great weekend. George, as always, awesome guest. And uh, Dennis, take care of yourself. And Doug, hey. And everyone else, take care. George. Is George, 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 no, George, hey, George, hey, guys, George, about George. 20 minutes. Okay, yeah, Dennis, I just back. want to mention one thing because everyone is talking about how to control risk in the face of a new regime of heightened volatility and in the face of an abundance of uncertainties. Uh, on the long side, I just want to say one thing on the short side because I tend to be biased there um, in terms of how I control risk. And it's even more important because um, of three factors. Obviously, stocks, as, as Denny just mentioned, go up over time. Secondly, uh, when you put on a short, the reward versus risk is asymmetric. You can only make 100% if you have a fraud or a bankruptcy. But as many shorts over time, um, like Wilson in Resorts International, um, uh, investors or shorts in early in the dot-com boom realize uh, that you can lose an infinite amount on the short side when stocks move up. The third thing people don't think about much is that if you're a long buyer and you're wrong, there's inherent risk control because the va the um, the individual equities percentage of your portfolio goes down. If you're a short seller and you're wrong, 
you better employ risk discipline because the percentage of your portfolio naturally is going up. So I use a basic uh, precept, my basic tenant in short selling. And when it's important because a lot of my shorts are uh, inherently high beta stocks, you know, the stocks I've been short, thank God, Peloton, Zillow, Twilio, Shopify, these are all crazy nut stocks with the apes embracing them time to time and moment to moment. And when I put on a short, first of all, uh, I limit the size to one half of the size of a long individual long position. So I will limit to two, two and a half percent at most, but I will always start very low in terms at like a half of 1% and funnel in. That's different than trading cotton uh, uh, commodities. But what I do to, to, um, to stabilize the risk factor uh, in light of the heightened volatility and possible systemic risk issues, as I almost always, especially in high beta stocks, by a uh, slightly out of the money call, which protects um, me on the upside and defines my total exposure, my total risk. This is fundamental. And I've always said, like I teach it um, a second year MBA class at Yale for the last 11 years. And I have a whole three hour lecture on structuring shorts. I've always said that it's the structure of a short, which is almost more important than what stock you're choosing to short. That's that's fantastic. I, I completely agree with you. Uh, absolutely. One question I have for you, Doug, and for Dennis. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on commodities and specifically precious metals at this juncture with all the debt that's sloshing around, all the uh, geopolitical risks, gold stocks, silver stocks, uh, miners, that type of thing? I, I avoid the miners. Uh, I, I'm very bullish on gold. As I tell people, I'm not a gold bug. There, are, I, I say time and time again, there are times when you are to be long of gold. There are times when you are to be short of gold. There are times when you are to be neutral of gold. But given the, the monetary expansion around the world of the past the several years, this is a decade, this is a time to be long of the gold market. I avoid the miners just because I'm always afraid of somebody, uh, of, of some mine being watered in, of somebody doing something unscrupulous. So when I when I trade gold, I, tra- I trade GLD. It's it, To me, it's the best way to be involved in the gold market. It's the cleanest, it's the best, uh, it, it's the best ETF. And I, I have a rather substantive position on my own account in, in GLD at this point. I agree totally I did, with uh, I, Dennis. Dennis, I, always, I like the old adage, um, there is a crook at the top of every mine, yeah. and in the mine, there's a fool. Whoa, I've never heard whoa, that one. Whoa, that whoa, one, guys, that I'm one. a mining CEO. Don't do that. <laughs> what, what, are you, what are you talking that's, about? That's a, that's a, I, I like that adage, Jenny. Go that's easy fantastic. I have experiences with Vengold and uh, uh, many of that ilk. Yeah. Well, I got to say, uh, I got to say, there are plenty of, uh, you know, plenty of gold mining companies out there. Very, you know, some very good, some very bad. So you got to, I agree with you guys on that. You just have to pick your spots. Uh, we have a question here from uh, Prodigy or Prodigal, and uh, we'll go to Bob after you, Prodigal. Go ahead. And and then Gar- I had Garbaz third up. Uh, Garbanz, are you there? You're up third. Yeah, I'm here. Uh, thanks for the room. That's a great space. Uh I just had one question for Dennis and whoever wanted to answer. I mean, I, I'm viewing this market, uh, at least what's occurring geopolitically, is different than anything we've seen probably since World War II in respects to just the rhetoric coming out from Russia and seeing, uh, you know, there's going to be uh, nations that are allied or basically in debt uh, diplomacy with China. 
that are now looking at this or, or hostile to the U.S. that are going to be looking at redundant or parallel systems. And worse to that, you know, we're looking at a lot of traditional U.S. allies basically hedge, right? You saw India, you know, uh, Pakistan, Israel, Turkey, Mexico, all basically come half-heartedly for sanctions. So my question is, it's a play I've, I've been looking at. Uh, wh- you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, uh, specific industries or sectors that uh, could gain from basically a U.S. Uh, service or other uh, companies losing share to countries that don't want to be caught between this new paradigm between East and West, right? You've seen, uh, you know, you see, everybody's seen the news about the big four, Goldman, J.P. Morgan, Deutsch, everybody pulling out of Russia, and they realize now that, you know, with a flip of a switch, uh, if you go on the wrong side of, of, of the West, they can turn you off economically. If you go on the wrong side of the East, they can hit you with commodities. So my, I just wanted to know what your thoughts were, because I know people are looking at technicals and stuff, but I don't think we've dealt with this, at least to my knowledge, till you know, there's been World War II, if not even before, even, if not uh, even earlier. So I, I was just curious. I don't think there's any question that this is deleterious in all aspects to the euro. I think the euro trades at par or below over the course of the next six months to a year. It can't be otherwise. They're clearly in far worse condition than we are economically. They're in far worse condition than we are geopolitically. Uh, they are in far worse position than geographically. The the I, I think the euro goes to uh, goes to uh, to par, and I think the real trade is to own gold in non-euro dollar terms. I think the real trade is to own gold in euro terms, to own gold in even in Swiss franc terms, to own gold in, in British pound sterling terms, but I think the real trade is to own gold in non, in, uh, in euro terms. I think, uh, and clearly gold in, in euro terms has been demonstrably stronger than gold in dollar. I think this is beneficial to the dollar in the long run, uh, the long run being the next six months to a year. And you're, you're right, we have not seen anything like this since World War II. Hopefully this shall go the way of all, it, it'll, it'll ameliorate over the course of the next uh, several weeks. I hope that it's true. Or I hope that happens, but I have my doubts. Dan, can I make a comment on the Russia situation? Absolutely. And, it's, and it sort of modifies, I think it was O'Hare. Who is the guy that's a contrarian and saying that uh, the situation in Ukraine can Tom. improve? Who is it? That was, you mean in the, in, in the discussions this afternoon? Yeah. yeah. Thomas. Yeah, I think Thomas is 100% right. And... I think that Russia now is an economic leper. I think they're going to fail miserably in their invasion of Ukraine. Couldn't agree more. And I think Ukraine is going to become a graveyard for the Russian military and could even end Putin's reign. And I think it's all bullish. The the Russian military convoy is 40 miles long. It's slowly being picked off by the Ukrainians. Supplies of equipment, gas, and guns are unable to reach the Russians now. And the mud season, you know, is soon going to start. You mentioned that in your in your paper. The Russian troops will be easy targets. Russia is not likely able to control most of Ukraine. And as the Russian army is picked off piece by piece, uh, Ukraine is going to get military equipment. They're going to get planes to attack Russia's uh, army, artillery, and tanks. Russia's military failure in Ukraine is going to accelerate. And drones are doing a great job against the Russian troops, which we don't hear about, but what is happening. And as the Russian forces are weakened in Ukraine, their quest and their appetite for the Balkans and Moldova is going to fail. Their depleted army is going to get wiped out ultimately by NATO forces. And there is simply no appetite for either the Russian people or its generals in the army to engage NATO 
at this point and risk the uh, you know World War Three. And th- though Putin fixed up the Gorbachev mess and raised the average Russian standard of living, already Russians are questioning the attack on Ukraine. If you go on YouTube, you see the protest protests. Uh, especially with relatives attacking relatives. And even though Putin controls the media, Russians are now being decimated by the expansion of sanctions, the collapse of their currency, which we all know about. Inflation is going through the roof of them. There's a lack of products available at the stores. Their social media has been closed down, and they have no ability to engage in financial transactions. And you see it in visible public protests. They're multiplying as the word is getting out, and as 15,000 dead bodies have already been returned from the war, and there's over 40,000 wounded. And and don't underestimate the reality and the consequences of the oligarchs. They're losing most, if not all, their wealth. One way or another, they could eliminate Putin. Yeah, Doug, I wanted to touch on that also. I, I think the way out here is coup d'etat, and those oligarchs are all vicious former military guys. I agree with you. They could give um, a I, shit about Putin. Ah, come on. So, so you know, so in any event, I've lived in the emerging markets for over a decade. You know, commodities and currencies, that's the name of my game. And, you know, back to Dennis's previous comment and Prodigy's question about commodities, um, the thing that I'm seeing here the most, you know, when I look at, the first thing I look at in the morning before I look at anything is the dollar. Right. Because that's the God particle and the whole deal for everything. So so um, if you would have told me that that these commodities were doing what they're doing when the dollar went from 90 to 100, I I would have never believed you. Just like if you looked at the data from the 2020 election and you told me Biden won, I would have never believed that either. So so one of the things that, you know, I. I, you know, hey, Michael, we'll get get right at your Michael. It's it's Bobby J, Jeff Garbaz and Garbaz and you. You're up third. Um, once, um, you, you know, I think that there's a huge air pocket in all of these commodities uh, besides maybe the precious, um, you know, given the this dollar, because the, the demand destruction. Right. If you're in a Sierra Leone or a Congo or a Zambia or a South Africa or one of these places, those local currencies are getting absolutely obliterated and which we've never seen before. I've personally never seen it in my lifetime. I'm 52. Um, you've got you've got oil and gas in particular. Those are the biggies with fertilizer and, and, and fuel and stuff skyrocketing. They are just getting destroyed. And and, and that to me is big, big, big time demand destruction that's coming. Um, we should start seeing that in some of these numbers here. Um, I don't know if you have a comment on that um, supposition, if you will. But if, if not, um, I think Bobby J, you're up, then Jeff Garbaz, then Michael. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Thank you very much, Dennis. Um, I'm a credit person, manage bond portfolios, uh, managed through the savings and loan crisis, the banking crisis in 1990, Asian crisis. And um, I left Bear Stearns in um September of 2007, when it uh, became obvious there was a problem. Uh, so credit um, is fellow bear guy. What, where were you at? What office were you in, Bob? What's that? What office were you in? Uh, I, in, I sat ten feet from Ralph Chiaffi. Oh, here, oh, just okay, just a quick thing. This room may dis- disconnect. Just letting you know. Uh, this room may disconnect. Just whenever you get the notification, 
30 or 40 oh, seconds it. after the room disconnects. So just if, if, if it disconnects, maybe one of us can make up a, a, just a backup room. Absolutely. George is having connection problems. He sent us gotcha. down to do what he was doing, and we're okay. we're starting to say get warnings here. Okay. Gotcha, gentlemen. Yeah, this, this, this is ahead, Dennis, Tom. and I, I have a hard stop at at five thirty. It, uh, it it makes it. I've got to go eat dinner, and I so okay. my voice starts to go. Away. So I, let's, let's, make sure. okay. let's get as many questions to Dennis yep. as we can, guys. All right. So and thank um, you, Mr. Gartman, for that. Thank you, Dennis. I my question to you is about credit and. Um, from where I sit, we're on the cusp of a European credit crisis. The Italian banks have not recovered. Um, they just moved a lot of their non-performers off balance sheet. Um, I, they still have not processed the whole COVID situation. And um, I think the trip, uh, the tripwire will be if we end up with another $100 billion of infrastructure destruction in the Ukraine, 